0: Welcome to episode 23 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host Danielle Dupuis, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is
1: Luna Ribeiro, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers.
0: And today we are joined by three founding members of Queers for Black Lives Matter: Zen Uzoma, president; Derek Lindsay, vice president; and Jill Franquelli, head of fundraising. Welcome to the Pridecast, y'all. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If y'all each want to uh, introduce yourselves and maybe share a little bit of background, that would be awesome.
2: I'm Zenzeli Uzoma, or Zen. I use pronouns she, her, they, them. And I am one of the co-founders of Queers for Black Lives. I've been working and organizing on and off for about the last 20 years, and recent events kind of pulled me out of my slumber, and brought me back onto the uh, activist platform. I'm Derek Lindsey. I am uh, one of the co-founders of Queers for Black Lives. I use the
3: pronouns he, him, and his. Uh, I'm a community organizer and an activist, and I've been uh, pretty politically active and active in the organizing environment for about five years now. Um, Recently, really excited to be doing work with Q4BL um, and just continue this work of elevating black voices and uh, trying to get platforms to people who need to be heard.
4: Hi, I am Jill Franquelli. I'm one of the co-founders and I'm in charge of fundraising and volunteers. And I'm really thankful for you to have us on today, Danielle, to talk more about our mission and what big event we have coming up.
0: Awesome. Um, Well, thank you all for being here. And speaking of that big event coming up, I know you guys have an Uh, organized march uh, set for this Saturday, September 19th. Do you want to share a little bit of information about this march and why it's so important?
2: Sure. We are marching for justice for Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her sleep on March 13th. It's been, I believe at this point, 184 days. Uh, since she was murdered, and zero arrest. So we just want some answers and some accountability. And the march will start at 1 p.m. We're gonna gather at the Why Not Lot. And then we're gonna march up to uh, Wyman Park Dell. And we just want to uh, get recognition out there and let people know that this is still an issue.
0: The, um, is there a website or anything else that people can check out? To, for more information?
2: So on social media, our Instagram handle is Q4BLM underscore March. And we can also be found on uh, Facebook under the same handle. So anyone can get more information, uh, more details and specifics on either of those. We'll be posting all week long to just mm-hmm. be people informed and aware, remind people that the March is coming up uh, this Saturday, the
4: 19th. Derek, we have a new website too, right? We just launched it. Yep. So you can
3: also find information on us and our upcoming event on queersforblacklives.com. It's queers and the numbers for blacklives.com. And that'll have links to both our Instagram and Facebook, uh, and also, obviously, information on the upcoming event that we have going on on the 19th.
0: Fantastic. Um, Now, the Black Lives Matter movement was founded in 2013. What made you decide to start Queers for Black Lives Matter?
2: Well, we actually uh, are Queers for Black Lives. We we started off as Queers for Black Lives Matter. And okay. realized quickly that there could be some confusion there and we would be associated with the BLM movement, which is very official at this point in time. If you go to their website, um, they have many different chapters and they are all listed there. Um, we wanted to... We're basically a coalition of queer activists and we're committed to fighting for the elevation of the black community. We really believe in one minority group fighting for and working for another. And we do that through demonstrations of peaceful protest and radical celebration. So unlike some of the other organizations, which we're very grateful for, all of the organizers and protesters the world over, making their voices heard, fighting for justice, and we wanted to join in on that collective outcry, but we also wanted to emphasize Black talent, um, Black art, and Black joy, essentially, by ending each march with a second rally full of performances. So, we want to remind our attendees of the beauty of the Black experience that We're also fighting to preserve and protect.
0: I really love that. Um, I just love that so much because, you know, you turn on the Facebook or you turn on the TV and if you look at the one side of the issue, there's always the people that are like, oh, you know, there's all this anger and hate and, and looting. And I think it's really important not to lose sight of the reason as to why there's protests and the reason as to why people are still demanding justice. And it's because there's all this beauty that's out there that's being destroyed for no reason at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that you are taking this, also taking this secondary positive approach and um, highlighting all the beauty that you have in the community as well. Um, what kinds of, now you're talking about art and uh, dance. Uh, so what, what kinds of experiences would people have if they uh, go to the
2: second rally? So for this March, the second rally, uh, we have a couple of different uh, bands that will be playing. We have a singer. Uh, We have a Vogue group that's gonna provide our grand finale, which we're really excited about, Divine and the Troublemakers. Uh, There will be a choir there singing as well. We have a great, MC Brian Bagley who's traveled and performed all over the world he just actually came back to Baltimore uh, COVID related reasons from Paris where he's been performing for the last I would say maybe a decade and some change in uh, a Josephine Baker review so it's going to be a really good time we're really excited
0: that does sound pretty phenomenal. Now, is this a uh, rally right after the March or is it on a separate date?
2: So we are going to march from the wine, not lot, and we're going to march to Wyman Dell where the rally will take place. So yeah, it's all going to happen on the 19th on the same day.
0: Fantastic. And is there going to be, um, do you recommend that people wear masks or stay six feet apart? I'm just asking for, you know, uh, covid purposes obviously
2: absolutely and yes and yes so once we get going this week with our posts and promotions we're going to emphasize that everyone wear their mask everyone stays separate and at the last rally everyone did such a great job all the attendees of remaining apart um everyone was geared up we have um a pretty large space so we're also going to encourage people to bring blankets so that they can situate themselves within their little groups and bubbles and just remain apart and enjoy the show fantastic
1: so how do you all know one another and um what are your day jobs like like do you find that your co-workers are supportive of the queer queer and black communities
4: I, i'll go first because okay. i actually can talk about how i've was found and then maybe Zen and Derek can talk about how the um, core group kind of started. But I just, I was driving along one day in June and just thought to myself like, man, how is there not a pride march or a protest or something like, why isn't the queer community doing something about this? And so I just mm-hmm. posted in a Facebook group and asked a question, hey, does anybody know Or wouldn't it be a good idea? I don't even remember what it was. And then Zen DM'd me and that's, I mean, they found me through a Facebook post. And so I was excited that a question led to being able to be a part of something that was so important to, I think, the queer queer community. And for me, my day job is um, I work for myself, so I have a great privilege and luxury to build Um, around me, the people I want to. And me and my wife made a decision about eight years ago when we were in business. We just said, um, we're going to stop hiding so much. And if the people around us don't love us, then we don't want them around us. And so it took us some time to be completely comfortable. But yeah, I mean, my circle, I want those that support us and also I don't shun those that don't because it's my job to help change their minds.
1: That's one.
2: That's a great attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Great mindset. Um, I was recently unemployed due to uh, COVID-19. So um, I was just kind of itching and burning and looking for something to do. And events were unfolding all around us. uh, Fatal, tragic events. Also pride. um, Events were canceled the world over due to the same Uh, concerns over COVID. So there was an article floating around on Facebook about Los Angeles Pride transforming into a march for Black Lives Matter protest. And Mm -hmm. I think it was three separate members of our group posted the article wondering allowed on Facebook if that was something we could achieve here in Baltimore. And I just happened upon Jill's post, like she said, which I think was in Be More Queer. And I responded, a couple of complete strangers are having a conversation about this. (laughs) Would you like to join? And um, yeah, I'm so glad she did because Jill's an accomplished fundraiser and she really, works hard to attract and galvanize our volunteer department. So it's been great.
3: Um, So, yeah, ultimately, uh, you know, Zen and I have known each other for many years. Uh, She's a really good friend of mine. I consider her family. So um, Zen actually went to school with uh, my brother-in-law. And so I've known her, uh, you know, in our personal lives. And um, I'm really happy that she thought of me and thought to bring me in uh, with this group that's so active. You know, as, as a member of the queer community myself, uh, it was really heartbreaking to see what COVID did to, you know, people's uh, potential pride celebrations. Pride is such an important part of our community. Um, so it's been really lovely to, by way of the Q4BL group, um, come together to celebrate and kind of reshape, um, you know, how we would celebrate pride, what that would look like, how we'd celebrate um, our community. Um, and it's also been really nice to come together, um, mostly in a virtual format, you know, meeting Jill, meeting Rachel, meeting Jazz, um, Mostly, you know, online because of COVID has been really great to come together for such an amazing cause to, you know, elevate folks in the community and really uh, bring justice and uh, light to these issues that are typically subverted. So it's been a really great experience for sure.
0: Well, that's awesome. And I, you know, I just wanted to kind of pull out uh, one of the things that you said, Jill, is about how, you know, you posed that question to other people and to, you know, the queer community and you got a response. And I think one of the things that we need to focus on, too, as a community for adults and youngsters alike, is that asking questions is so important because not only does it lead to answers, but it leads to opportunity, Um, so I'm really glad that y'all found each other and are working together. And I think this is just like a great example of how people that have a similar mission can get together and collaborate and create something positive out of something negative. And you too, Zen, I mean, how awesome is that? Like, you know, you lost your job and I mean, that's horrible, but then you took all that energy and you're like, I got to do something. I, you know, I need to activate our community and just kind of put this plan into place and, you know, your guys are doing such great stuff. Um, so thank you all for, uh, you know, for doing everything that you're doing right now. Cause it, it's amazing. And I know it's a ton of work. Um, do you know, uh, are there, are there any youth activists involved in Queers for Black Lives?
2: Not currently. We are beginning. So we're definitely looking for, more core members. We want greater representation. We would love a queer young member to join. We're actively looking for um, a trans-identifying person to join our core group. We want to flesh out the group and just get more insight and um, be able to access more of our community, which is so rich and different types of people. So we want to be a voice for all of them, and in order to do that, we definitely are looking to include um, youth and trans people uh, in the group.
4: Yeah, I think diversity of thought in anything you do is so very important, and, you know, because we don't really have that in the United States is kind of why we are where we are today. So I think you know Zen putting together a group that really shows what the comere- the queer community is all about is key to being able to protest, to being able to bring our voices all together because we are looking at all different directions. And I think one of our proudest well my proudest moment um, was during the pride March was someone was, literally just blown over that we had created a section for those who had a disability to be able to be up front. And we worked really hard to be very inclusive to a community who's really forgotten about when we're marching. And so um I'm, I think that that is just as organizations are being built, something that we all need to focus on is if we are fighting for equality and moving forward, we can't forget anybody because our voices are only as strong as as many people who are there together.
3: I will say That's too that, that I agree with Jill that that was something that I think we all really appreciated about the march that we were able to put together, um, the inclusivity. And I think it's important to mention that, that diversity, that um, diversity of thought, that diversity of you know even the core members within our group was really intentional. So I think it's really important that you know any group looking to put together something should be proactive in reaching out to folks. Uh, to Zen's point, we are looking to make sure that we're as diverse as possible and that we're really representing um, as many voices as possible. Um, but that really has to be an intentional, uh, proactive thing that you know that we're putting out there that we want to bring in people who are trans identifying and representing their voice. We want to bring in people who are queer youth and representing their voice and really anybody else. It ultimately makes our uh, mission a lot more effective, um, makes our events a lot more rich and uh, makes us a more impactful group overall.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that brings me to my next question, actually. Uh, So your first march was on International Pride Day this past June 27th. Um, how did that go? What did you have planned in the itinerary? And did it all go to according to your original plans?
2: Derek, what, did you want to answer that?
3: Uh, Sure. So yeah, ultimately, I think we were blown away um, by how beautifully that march went. Um, you know, we as organizers do our absolute best to plan for every possibility. You know, our, our job as organizers is to make the event as safe as possible and build an infrastructure so that people can come out and demonstrate and be heard in a safe you know, manner. Um, ultimately, that march we got everything that we wanted out of that and more. Um, you know, we had more people show up than we expected. Our uh, the energy behind our speakers and our performers was intense and joyful and beautiful. Um, and also, you know, there were moments of really somber reflection when we're paying attention to, you know, why we have to march. The kind of um, voices that are subverted and that are not paid attention to you know, get a platform, but it really shouldn't be that we should have to come together um, in this way, in a a protest, you know, every so often to have these voices be heard. You know, ultimately, I think we were really impressed by uh, the number of volunteers who showed up. Um, The energy that everyone brought to to the event was, you know, overwhelming, honestly. Um, I would say that, you know, we were really lucky in that we were lucky with the weather. We were lucky with Um, you know, all of the different pieces that came together, but it really was the planning that made sure that everything came together as planned. So, um, you know, we ultimately pulled it off, I think, without a hitch, really energized us and made us feel really good about moving forward as a group, um, you know, and looking forward to our next march and event.
1: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, I'm sad I missed it, but I'll definitely be at the next one. Oh, that's great.
4: Yeah, we'd love to have you there, Uma, for sure.
1: Yeah, it sounds great.
4: I mean, I'd like to share maybe a favorite moment from the march, if that was okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't get to actually physically march in it because I was running from one spot to the next to make sure it was set up. And um, I think the moment that made it so powerful for me was kind of two marches or or protests converged. And as... um, Our march was coming down into City Hall. Um, Music, I Will Rise Up was playing as this other protest was ending. And the power that just, these two groups converging, marching um, and chanting and seeing people that I love. And just, it was overwhelming to see how a community can come together that uh, feels so marginalized to help another community that is being marginalized. And so it was just a very powerful moment. And it made all the work, the many hours to get this um, off the ground, so worthwhile for that one moment for me.
3: That was a really beautiful moment. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unexpected.
3: I would say a lot of it
2: for me was unexpected in that – An opportunity to get all of the artists and speakers together beforehand and do a proper sound check or do a little rehearsal. We didn't even know exactly how the itinerary was going to unfold, the performance lineup. So the fact that it just all kind of gelled together harmoniously was just really amazing and interesting. And it just inspired me to continue.
3: I I do want to, I love this idea of like, what was your favorite moment? So Jill, thank you for, you know, bringing that point up. I think about it and honestly, it brings me to tears even thinking about it now when, so one of the major things that I think we wanted to get out of this march was to be able to benefit, you know, an organization in Baltimore City that um, we were looking for an organization kind of considering which organization would make the most sense and thinking about which ones don't get enough attention, don't get enough support, but really are doing great work for the Black, the um, LGBTQ, and really the trans communities. Um, and so we were able to ultimately fundraise for this event. Uh, we got a lot of things done by way of donation. Um, and we, when Jill let us know that we were able to um, you know, raise such a good amount of money for Baltimore Safe Haven, which was an organization that you know, is just founded in 2019. Um, And then of course, going through uh, the COVID situation in this year, really had their challenges up against them, but they do incredible work for the trans community and they do incredible work for trans youth in Baltimore City. Um, And I remember that when Jill let us know that we were able to fundraise and actually able to turn over some of those funds to Baltimore Safe Safe Haven, it really brought me to tears. So I think, you know, honestly, the March was, beyond what we could have expected. And a lot of that was just because of the energy that people brought um, and the dedication that people had to just show up. You know, at a time I think when we were all really afraid to come out and do something like this, we really had to prioritize, um, you know, this social justice uh, effort um, and show up for folks in the community. So it was a really beautiful event and a really beautiful uh, experience overall.
0: That's awesome. Um, and I know, uh, Baltimore safe, uh, Haven you mentioned was open in 2019, but, uh, basically provides housing for, um, homeless, uh, trans youth, right. um, and adults as adults as well. Doesn't it?
3: They do. And they do, they don't just do housing. They do such a huge array of, uh, services to, uh, the trans community. So, You know, they help folks with uh, meal programs. They help folks with legal services for, you know, name change, which is a really important thing specifically for those uh, who are trans identifying. Um, So they, Mm -hmm. and it really seems to me that they were really dedicated toward, you know, trying to make life better in Baltimore for this population in whatever capacity they possibly could. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it was certainly one of the things that when we as a team discussed where we wanted to, you know, divert some of these funds or even just divert attention to, you know, have these people come on stage and speak. Baltimore Safe Haven kept coming up because they do such incredible work and because we wanted to be able to benefit them in whatever way we could. Um, so I think, you know, that was sort of like the icing on the cake to be able to um, pull off in a, in a march where everyone is safe and um, able to enjoy themselves, but also really pay attention to why we're there is ultimately what we came to do. But, mm-hmm. on top of that, being able to benefit such an incredible organization in Baltimore was you know honestly really moving
0: I think that's that's fantastic and I mean, what a great way to start it all now you you guys raised a significant amount of money for that. Um, I just looked on your um, page and saw the um the uh, donation page. Now, how did you go about with the fundraising and getting the word out that hey, you know we're doing this march and you know, help out if you can and money's going to be going to Baltimore State Haven. How how did you do that with all the fundraising and, uh, you know, promotion, marketing?
4: Um, So we did it two ways. We started a GoFundMe and through our amazing volunteers and just being spread on social media. I mean, there's so many bad things about social media, but there are so many great benefits for it. And so being able to put that GoFundMe out there... And the reason why we were able to give that amount of money, I think it was close to $6,000, was because I was able to approach um, the medical cannabis industry, which is where I like play around um, in my day job. And they gave us the funds to be able to pull off the logistics of the the, um, March that time. So... You know through people being passionate and caring and concern and you know realizing that everybody um, is struggling in some kind of way during covid so if they couldn't donate financially sharing uh, the gofundme or coming to volunteer that day we also you know there are people who had concerns about covid so making sure that those who wanted to come and volunteer had a safe place to come and I think just because we paid attention to those details and really, um, I know we all three of us have event backgrounds and so I think that helped to legitimize our ability to fundraise because we were showing where it was going along the way and I think um, we all have very trusted and respected uh, reputations in our industries and so I think that helped with the fundraising as well. Like Jill's not telling us a bunch of lies, like this is really going to do something.
0: Oh, yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic in itself. And then also, I know, I always look at a organization before I donate money to see where exactly is the fund going, you know, because a lot of times, places you'd like think, okay, if I donate $20, and then you look and it's like, oh, well, 18 of that $20 went for me to mail out more fundraising information. You know what I mean? That's, so, I think that's cool that you were able to be upfront
4: about it. Yeah, we uh, appreciate that. And if I could, while we're just, I mentioned volunteers, and I just don't want to forget this. If anybody um, would like to volunteer for the March this Saturday, the 19th, if they could shoot us an email at queersforblm at gmail.com. We, with school starting, we realize everyone's being pulled a lot of different directions. And so, we are short just a few volunteers. So if anyone would like to come and help, and obviously mask, gloves, social distancing, the whole nine yards, but we will also have that there for you as well. Awesome.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about this upcoming March. So on your website, you have a list of demands, which is um, arrest the murderers of Breonna Taylor, um, fire the Attorney General of Kentucky, uh, Daniel J. Cameron, abolish all no-knock warrants across the United States, and require all police officers to participate in thorough de-escalation training. Um, Can you talk a little bit about those demands?
2: Yeah, and we'd also like to add a demand to that list, which is we are demanding a full repeal of the Maryland Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Uh, And just to quote uh, leaders of a beautiful struggle, it, it provides a series of protections that impede the ability of the community to have a role in investigation of police misconduct and discipline. So we wanted to get some answers and also have some results from this march. I mean, like I said, so many wonderful people are organizing and we could march all day and night, but At the end of the day, we would like something concrete um, as a result. So I think that these are very reasonable things to ask um, of the government, of the American government, and of uh, Baltimore City, um, arresting the murderers of Breonna Taylor. Uh, It's, like I said, it's been 184 days since this woman was murdered, and um, the... Attorney General of Kentucky Daniel J. Cameron has made little to no headway to the point where the FBI has now been involved in this investigation. So it's just absolutely ridiculous. I don't think he is up to the task. And um, the people of Louisville are outraged as well and don't feel protected and don't feel looked after by him. Uh, No-knock warrants are again, ludicrous. Um, they were implemented during the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. And it just allows for a lot of the uh, legal murdering of Black people by the police. And uh, a lot of just nefarious things to go um, unchecked. And we think they are, it's just time that they- and I don't think it's too much to ask that police officers who are carrying loaded weapons um, that require them to participate in thorough de-escalation training. Um, time and time again, we hear that they're in fear for their lives when confronting armed, unarmed uh, citizens, citizens who are apparently sleeping. So it's just a good idea that they are as... Um, prepared as possible for these situations that they're going into.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess, so here's what I don't understand. So if a police officer has a no-knock warrant, and if, just like in uh, the case of, of Brianna's case, the person who they were looking for actually lived 10 miles away from where she was located, does that... Does the no-knock warrant give police a blanket statement to enter the home of anyone they think that this where they think this person might be or just the home address because I I guess that's where I don't I don't understand why they were even at the location even at her house.
4: I mean I think that's a great question Danielle cuz you're actually right. I've had a good friend of mine whose son in April was pulled out of his bed in the middle of the night by a no-knock warrant. And um, he was identified by someone in a leasing office and they took the leasing office said, this person lives here, mistaken identity the whole nine yards, but they were only able to go into that house based on someone he had never met before identifying him. So the, the problem with no knock warrants is like this, this, this law or this thing that they can do didn't get stemmed out of like research or a need. It was a 28-year-old congressional aide that said, oh, hey, how can we make our police force look stronger and scarier? Oh, let's just allow them to bust down doors. And in fact, there's been times after it was implemented that they have asked to reverse it because it's not only deadly, the people on the other side but it's also deadly for the police force because what they thought they were going to be doing was breaking up these huge drug rings and busting in and they have these grand visions like they've made in the movies and so the problem with the no-knock warrant is it's it's such a bad policy to begin with i think that there's these gray areas which is why what you just said danielle wouldn't it stand to reason that her murderers would have already been arrested because they just went into someone's house they shouldn't have been in? Yeah,
0: I, I, I mean, I guess, and I think this is probably where the rest of the, the, you know, people that are protesting this are lied to is that how did this even happen? I mean, I, yeah. You're sleeping in your bed. You're thinking, okay, I'm asleep. You go to bed, right? You turn out your lights. You're not thinking you're gonna get shot up in the night by people that are supposed to be keeping you safe. Yeah. Um, for no reason. I just it's just unfathomable. And I and I had no awareness, like prior to her murder, I had no awareness of this no-knock warrant. And I think that as an American people, we should all be extremely concerned about this. Um, just because, you know, if somebody says like, oh yeah, I know, I know Danielle, she, oh yeah, I saw her over there. Like, and it might not even be me or the person that they're looking for. It could be somebody that looks like me and without any research whatsoever, somebody could come and, and get that person that, you know, that they were trying, that they think it might be, I, it's just unfathomable.
1: Yeah, it's, it's
0: really absolutely
2: terrible. I mean, no one should be murdered in their sleep by the police or sworn in to protect and serve us. It just gives you a feeling as a society that none of us are safe.
0: hmm. And I think that's that's extremely unsettling for, uh, you know, for for everyone, um, not just with what we've already seen and witnessed in the media of um, the killing of innocent lives in broad daylight. Uh, but also, you know, you're not even safe in your own home. Um, it's, uh, I don't understand why there hasn't been more action taken on the part of the governments, the police officer organizations. Like, you know, I guess I think about like my own job. You know, if I do something wrong, if I say something wrong, if somebody even remotely accuses me of something wrong, I'm immediately off the job you know, right. and I'm, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I don't carry a weapon.
3: So I think you that know? That's, a, that's a great point because what this boils down to is accountability. Um, the lack of mm-hmm. accountability that we've allowed. Um, and the reality is the accountability that we as a, as a um, community have the responsibility to enforce. So I think mm-hmm. that is sort of the driving force behind all of us mobilizing. That's the driving force behind all of these people who are volunteering, who are donating, um, you know, to offer protections to American citizens. These are people who deserve the right to be able to go to bed and, you know, be safe, wake up safely in their own bed um, and not have someone break down the door and potentially kill them with no accountability. So I think that that, you know, all circles back to that, that overarching theme of accountability
2: hmm. Yeah. And who should be holding them accountable? The police in this case is the attorney general, Daniel J. Cameron. He the attorney general's job is they're the people's lawyer, um, you know, and they advise and represent legislature and state agency. Uh, but if you go to his Instagram page. And scroll down, you will come across a post and it says, proud to be endorsed by the fraternal order of police. Hmm. He is, yeah, uh, endorsed by what he calls the bipartisan Kentucky fraternal order of police. uh, And I think that's a problem.
3: I think Mm -hmm. this is also a point at which, you know, all of us as citizens need to individually stand up, you know, like life is short. We only have so much time on earth. And we have to think about what part each of us individually play in this you know larger um, story that's unfolding. You know, these aren't just things that we're seeing on the news, we're hearing about. these are people's lives. Um, and as no one's life is more important than the next person's life, we have the responsibility individually to stand up. So I think it's important, you know, to understand why people are protesting, why people are donating, why people are volunteering, mm-hmm. but more important, to in our own shoes think, like, what am I doing? To contribute to this issue, or what am I doing to overthrow it, to dismantle it, you know, to take it apart, and to protest? Uh, mm-hmm. so I think that's everyone's individual responsibility.
0: And and I and I understand, you know, some people are looking at this like, well, you know, I it doesn't affect me, but it does. It affects all of us, um, you know. And as you said, lives are important the lives that we have here, we're given limited time, lives are important, and we cannot afford to lose one life over this kind of stupidity.
3: Absolutely. And unfortunately, this is a situation where this is not just one life, not that any one life is unimportant, but this is a system. uh, It's a real system that's in place. This isn't something that you know is just kind of a one-off situation this unfortunately is something that we have seen in the news every day and every week and will continue to see in the news every day and every week of citizens losing their lives at the hands of police um, unjustly unless we do something about it we really have to reinvent this situation and start to hold people accountable hold ourselves accountable for what we have to do um, and nobody wants to you know we are organizers we are Activists. Nobody wants to do this. I don't. I don't personally. I had a conversation with a friend of mine um, just yesterday about this, and um, you know, she was just excited about what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm I, while I'm excited about the mission here, no one wants to spend their time fighting for people who are not going to be heard and then having their voices continually be, you know. Um, put down, we shouldn't have to do this. It's not something that we should have to do, but it is something that we have to do. We have to remember that we have this responsibility, um, each right. and every one of us.
4: Yeah, that's a great point, Derek. Like the almost uh, glamorizing right. of putting on something like this when really it's the saddest thing.
3: It's the saddest yeah. thing. It's it's something that we should not have to do. We should not have to fight for people to recognize that people's lives, that black people shouldn't be murdered, that anyone shouldn't be murdered without consequence or without accountability. But that's the reality that we do live in. And so, you know, just to be able to sleep at night, just to be able to, I I consider this work as I consider my day job work. um, These things are all really important. Um, And this is the most important thing. You know, I think that it's important that we all think about how we fit into this uh, because again, this is an entire system that we are either working to dismantle or we are working day to day to uphold.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that really Uh, is a great point.
0: Now, one of the other demands where it was the de-escalation training for police is that, do you know what is, I mean, obviously after uh, Freddie Gray and um, you know, I would hope that there was some sort of change in Baltimore after that event, um, after that murder. Is there any practice that we have in Baltimore now? Um, Has the police commissioner had any comments to share about the plans for this? Or, I mean, did it just get buried in the news and we all missed it? It just hasn't happened yet. I mean, you know what I mean?
4: That is a great question that... I don't know if any of us know the answer to Derek then <laughs> I do know. Wait, was it, I mean, Baltimore city's police is not their own police, right? We're under dissent or is it dissent decree or I don't know. Um, I we're, I'm not very like versed on what happened right after that or, or what I just know that our police is, I think, handled not at a local level. Hmm. I'm trying to go there quickly.
2: (laughs) Right. I think uh, Baltimore police officers nowadays are being trained to de-escalate. Some of our demands are local and others are national, but that is definitely not the case nationally for all police officers. Mm -hmm.
4: Oh, yeah. So they're on a consent decree, right? They were just um, found to have practices that violates the first, fourth, and many other amendments. So, yeah, they're actively having to go through stuff because of that.
0: Okay. I guess, you know, it's – I would be really curious to to see kind of what happens, like, on on the daily, like, if you are a police officer. Because I I totally can understand that they probably see things, horrific things, on the daily – um, have to break up fights or, you know, go into people's homes and, uh, you know, protect children and, um, witness death and murder on, you know, frequently. Um, and I can't imagine what that does to a person mentally, you know what I mean? Um, and I can imagine that it would cause a lot of angst and distrust and anger. Um, and I guess it's just one of those things where as an educator, you know, every year we have to go through training. It's like how to um, handle bullying and, you know, what do you do in this situation or that situation and, you know, uh, social, and emotional learning for our students, um, you know, how to administer Narcan, you know, I, I mean, there's so many different things and every year it's different, you know. Yeah. I don't understand why in a regular job such as dealing with the public and handling these types of situations that there wouldn't be adequate continual training and constant check-ins, you know?
3: Yeah. Um, I don't think you're the only one who questions that. Honestly, I think, you know, through this process of organizing a lot of the people that we've had volunteering have been um, social workers, have been nurses, have been EMTs.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. these are
3: people who daily, they deal with the exact same population, uh, the general population. They deal with some of, you know, people Mm -hmm. in really vulnerable situations and their top priority um, because of their training, because of the systems that are in place and, um, you know, the expectations and the accountability, their top priority has to be the safety of the person that they're there to protect or to serve. Mm -hmm. Um, This is just a situation where we, we have to apply some of those same responsibilities and accountabilities. That we offer to doctors, nurses, um, EMTs, firefighters, all of these people who are, you know, they are civil service professionals. Police officers are certainly no different. They're there to protect and serve. We want, you know, for them to feel safe with their job, at their job. Uh, mm-hmm. But that shouldn't be at the cost of other people's lives, innocent people's lives.
0: Absolutely not, um, yeah. It just,
3: you know, it ultimately makes a much safer environment for everyone, uh, including police officers, when we have a certain level of accountability, a certain level of training, responsibility, maybe even some sort of certification processes, but ultimately some sort of checks and balances in place that we just don't have.
2: I think the mental health aspect of police work is not considered at all. And I totally agree with that. I mean, it's a conversation that the entire country is just starting to, you know, um, really take on. And we're just kind of all starting to edge our way toward that table to have that conversation. But to expect people, like Jill said, to witness and be involved in some of the horrors that they they witness on you know, a daily or weekly basis and expect them to not be impacted by that mentally is... I think just, you know, asking a lot of a human being. I mean, maybe it's something even extreme, like they need to be rotated, you know, off the beat. And you do so many hours, weeks, days on beat, and then you are put behind the desk or put in some other role within the department. But, you know, after you have murdered someone, whether it was justified or not, I think it's safe to say you probably need a mental break.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and I, as you were talking, it kind of jogged my memory too. Is that you know to to cut back on funds, uh, you know, due to funding issues or whatever. I know that a lot of police officers that used to go out with a partner are now on their own. So it's like they have lost that camaraderie and that support from having another individual. So they're basically we're sending them out there on their own. To deal with problems and all that, you know, pent up aggression. I mean, it just comes out. I mean, and I'm not defending what they have done. Absolutely not. But I'm just saying, I am in agreement that we need to have some extreme uh, measures taken to what we currently have going on in our police forces, um, some major support of our officers in order to overcome whatever, uh, you know, trials and tribulations of the day that are eating away at them that are causing these murders. I mean, it's, I unfortunately watched the George, George Floyd video and was brought to tears. And I think what I couldn't understand is why, why wasn't anyone stepping in? It's like, he was completely glazed over. Like, I don't, at one point, I don't even know, did he even know what he was doing? Like, he's screaming at you to stop. I can't breathe and nobody's doing anything.
4: Well, I mean, when you have a system, I mean, that the answer goes way back to when you build a system that's meant to do this, it's doing exactly what it's meant to do, uh-huh. which is to keep black people down. Right. And so it just it's, you know, and I can understand because I'm one of those people while I kind of got it was bad until you really start to understand, oh, no, this is like from day one, from day one, this is what the police are to do. And it's just gone from slavery to policing to 2.1 million people being incarcerated.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: And so it's just, yeah, mental health is extreme, but we as a society have built up police officers as heroes yeah. and that they have these um, nerves of st- steel and they're Superman, which would never do anything wrong and they're not human and that's not the case. When wait, 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 wait.
3: sorry, Joe, go ahead.
4: Oh, no, go ahead. When you're just faced with decisions you're not trained for, and your system trains you to think of black people as less, you're always going to make a bad decision.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, ultimately, that's a great point. Um, you know, this is a system that we've designed. Um, not us personally, none of us, you know, most of us who are alive today didn't necessarily design the system, but we're sort of living this out. We're we are. Following through with you know the lineage and the inheritance of people who before us had different intentions of where we want to go, the world we want to bring forward. So we really have to prioritize all people and recognize that you know these police officers they are humans. They you know th- there can be mistakes that can be made. There can be um, you know personal vendettas. There can be mental health issues. There can be trauma. Like I can't imagine a more Uh, you know, trauma facing department than EMTs and police officers. Um, These people deal with these things and we don't yet have any way to support them. Um, And we ultimately are also, you know, at their mercy because these are armed people, people who are armed and, you know, have mental health issues, have trauma issues that are unresolved and to your point are overworked, under supported. Death is going to be sort of a, a default outcome. Um, an innocent death of citizens is going to be a default outcome of a system like that, but that can't be tolerated. You know, we have mm-hmm. to uh, do what we can to dismantle and to uh, rework the system, not just for the benefit of the citizens, but for the benefit of the police officers also.
2: Yes, definitely chime for an overall overhaul. And uh, like Jill was saying, just the origins of the police they were, they started off as slave patrols. So their whole job was to find runaway slaves and uh, bring them back to their owners. So where do you go from there? We just need to reform this system entirely. And I think that's what this movement is about right now. The civil rights movement was about asking for equality and for equal rights, and our movement is more so about breaking down and dismantling systems that no longer serve us.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say to um, to folks who are still not quite understanding the movement of you know, hey, you know, I I'm a white person, don't I matter too? Or my husband is a police officer, doesn't he matter too? What would you, what do you have to say to those, those, uh, people?
4: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Then would you like to start with this?
2: That's a hard question for me to answer. I'm not really convinced a lot of people are struggling with this concept. Um, I think, you know, there are certain members of our society that don't want their privileges removed. Mm Mm-hmm. They want to remain in a position of privilege and, um, to some extent, material superiority. And I think people recognize that that is coming to an end. Like I said, we are working to dismantle that and level the playing ground. And I think it's upsetting to people who are comfortable perched, you know, in a certain position. hmm
3: Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, I think it's important to recognize, you know, that we all share space here. Um, We all sort of coexist, um, but we all definitely coexist in parallel universes. So, you know, some people have motives that serve them, but don't necessarily serve all of us. Um, And so it it may not be worth um, the energy to try to convince someone of a different point of view it may be worthwhile, it may make more sense and be more worthwhile to spend our energy really fighting for what we feel is right um, in our Mm -hmm. own right. Um, I can totally understand, to Zen's point, I can totally understand that there are people out there who benefit from the system, and that is the reason that they cannot see beyond their own skin. And unfortunately, that is sort of a symptom of being human. Um, I think, Danielle, you brought up a great point earlier in that you were watching the George Floyd video you know, that's nine minutes of agony and that was just one human life that we saw end. But I, I think that many of these people who weigh in, uh, who have opinions, haven't taken the time to see that video or haven't taken the time to see all these other videos, these documented situations of people being murdered. Um, I think that is a personal responsibility that we all sort of have to really understand, you know, before we speak out, before we have an opinion on the subject, to really see who's being impacted, you know, who's like who lost their lives and how they lost their lives. It's really hard to watch videos like that and maintain your point of view of, you know, uh, defending someone who's got their knee on someone else's neck. But there will always be someone out there who will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that it's necessarily a great use of our energy to try to convince others of our point of view. The reality mm-hmm. is this is a tide that is shifting, and there will always be people. are willing to fight for what's right and for what's just Um, and so those of us who have that opinion just need to fight harder need to fight louder you know need to give more money need to push against the system that inevitably will fall
0: and you know i think too it's it's a it's a black lives issue but it's a humanity issue and i think if you are on the other end and you can still defend that that was an okay thing to do, I think that, that that those people need to look deeply into their own humanity and really think about why it is that they think that way. You know I, what I, I mean?
3: agree with that. I also agree. You know, I've had a lot of, I think all of us have had lots of conversations um, over the last so many years about the Black Lives Matter movement. And the reality is we all have friends, coworkers, um, sometimes family members who see things in a different point of view. Uh, And I've recognized that, you know, there are specifically white folks who don't understand what the Black Lives Matter movement is, what it means. And some of them think, you know, might think that what it's meant to convey is that Black Lives Matter more or Black Lives Matter now. Um, Those aren't really the sentiment behind, you know, this hashtag, this movement, what it comes down to is Black Lives Matter too. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if, 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 when they developed it, and no one's perfect, this movement has been incredible and literally changed the world. But if when they developed this hashtag, it had been Black Lives Matter too, I think there would be less dissent and less um, misunderstanding behind the motivation behind this. I think that you know, it's hard for people who are not black, it's hard for people who are not paying attention to black issues to realize the plight of black people or that they've been um, ignored. And so you know, to hear Black Lives Matter and you're if you're white, if you're Latino, if you're anything other than black, it just may not resonate the same way.
4: I mean, one of the key things that I look at before I engage with someone is where are they at in their lives? So if you come upon someone who is white, whose entire social circle is white, who lives in an area that's all white, who they can't really have an opinion on anything that is black in nature. And so you have to then realize it's coming from like ground zero with them Mm -hmm. and putting things in, and that's like the work that for me as a white person I need to do is to start to change that with them and start to share that with them because in their circles and where they are, the rhetoric is that black lives don't matter and that it's an anti-cop movement that if black lives matter, then white lives are whatever. I don't know. But, and so you have to look at them before you get in the argument Mm -hmm. because you can't expect someone to yell at you in French if they don't know French. You know what I mean? So
0: that's a good point. You know,
4: we just have to look at that and realize like some people are more advanced in their education of, the how the united states came to be and so they're going to be much more able and understanding to hear statements that will upset other white people and mm-hmm. so we just and i think what derek said was if that too was added to it it probably would have changed things for that group of individuals but now it's my job to break down that rhetoric and start to share that and then some people you just don't talk to afterwards <laughs>
1: right
4: yes unfollow
2: a lot of i was just going to say a lot of it also has to do with just you know the terrible education system in this country um there are textbooks out there with flat out lies in them and so like jill was saying when you're approaching someone you really have to think about where they're coming from what level of education they received i used to attend bar and i waited on several um people who moved to the area from the south and we would just go over some of the lies in in the material that they received as uh young kids in elementary and middle school and how it just rewrote history there's this great you know whitewashing of our history so people are legitimately being taught that you know, um, the civil rights movement, which what started in around 54 and ended, I think around mid late sixties, 68, that, that basically fixed all the problems that black people were having with the United States. And it can look that way to some people for other reasons, because we do have a lot of success Within our community, but there's still so much more to fight and do. And one of those things we have to fight
4: is the miseducation
2: of the American public.
4: And that's mm-hmm. hard to do because you basically have to get that person to go through a process of realizing what they've known and they've believed is inaccurate. And I feel like you go through stages, and I've watched, you know, people go through this as you know, there's extreme guilt. There's all of these things because they just didn't know. And so what we're asking people is very similar when um, I came out and all my religious friends couldn't take it and all the things that they said and I just, it's very similar. They believe to their core that queer is bad. I believe to my core that queer is good. So to change someone's mind that that's entire foundation, that takes a lot of work because that's say, like a value.
3: Good point for sure. I, I will say that, you know, not to beat a dead horse here, but uh, to kind of go back to your question of what would we say to, you know, these people who have this opinion uh, of all lives matter or that black lives don't matter. Again, those aren't necessarily the people that we should spend our energy on, but I do think that there are people around them who we who are willing to talk to us, who are curious about this. You know, people who are adjacent to those mindsets are people who may be uh, worth our energy. So I, I'll say this as a, you know, I'm a black queer man in Baltimore City. I'm exhausted, exhausted, exhausted with having conversations with white people about why I support the Black Lives Matter movement about why I believe Black trans lives matter. I'm exhausted with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had, you know, I think I've always been something of an activist. When I think I had made the conscious choice to become outwardly transparent with that, I had many, many people reach out to me and question me, challenge me. Um, Some of them have changed their opinions and some of them have not. But when I think about it, I don't know that that was the best way for me to spend my energy. I do think that there are lots of folks that are white, who have family members uh, who are more conservative, and those people who have that opinion of uh, you know, being more left-leaning, more liberal, or, uh, or just believing in this movement um, have the responsibility to speak up. You know, we, all have, we all come from uh, a different background than where we are if we've progressed in life. So it's sort of our responsibility to share our point of view with our family members, with our coworkers, workers um, And so I think the responsibility really exists within some of those white folks to speak up, You know, use your personal voice to, to speak toward what you think is right and the right thing to do by other people.
0: What is your future? What is the future that you see for um, queers, for Black lives? So you already have, you've done one march um, and rally, you have another march and rally lined up. Where do you see the future going? And I know you were going to be donating the money from this upcoming rally um, for justice for Breonna Taylor. Um, So where do you see things for black lives for queers, for black lives in let's say another year?
2: Um, Unfortunately, we will probably still be a necessity in that there will still be violences against the black community to protest. Um, So that aspect uh, will not go away. We're hoping to, Uh, be able to have a stronger uh, second rally Mm -hmm. that we believe Black Joy is very important to emphasize and highlight and showcase. So I think more importantly for us as a court, we want to get our actual business practices, um, just have them stronger. We need to have a conversation about these new members that we want to involve. Uh, and we actually are not going to be raising money for this particular oh, okay. March. Sorry. We are directing all attendees uh, to Rihanna Taylor's fund, her GoFundMe. Um, the way this is going, it looks like, unfortunately, it's probably going to be a um, a civil case, civil lawsuit. So um, they're going to need all the funding they can get to, to fight this and fight the system. And we didn't want to be a middleman in, in the way of that. So we're just going to send people directly over to uh, the GoFundMe that her mother started, who I believe is Tamika Harris. Is that correct, Jill? Uh,
3: Tamika Palmer.
2: Tamika yeah. Palmer. So we, uh, we're we just going to step out of the way and allow that to happen. And uh, we just want to become a stronger organization and just, you know, like I said, have a core group that's diverse and represents the entire um for community so that we can serve them better.
3: Yeah, I would certainly second that. I think, um, you know, to Zen's point, we are looking to add more diverse points of view and voices and people to our core group of who we are. So we intend to grow as an organization. You know, we have our overarching ideas and our mission um, and so we're going to stay true to that, and unfortunately, uh, we will always be uh, fighting for you know some of these things that we feel are so important. I expect personally that you know over time, as we incorporate more diverse voices and energies, what we do and how we demonstrate may change over time. So so far we've got you know the protests that we had in June, the protests that we have coming up. And protesting can look like so many different things. Um, you know, protesting isn't necessarily being out in the streets marching, especially in the COVID world, uh, but a huge and pivotal and precious act of protest is also voting. You know, so we've discussed uh, even recently the fact that getting people to vote, getting people's voices elevated in that manner is an important piece of the pie uh, or an pe- important piece of the puzzle that we ultimately attend to intend to pay more attention to. Um, so it may change over time in terms of what we actually do, boots on the ground, um, and we also may have, hopefully, uh, even more diverse ideas behind who we're able to fight and advocate for, uh, but we intend to always be an organization looking to elevate you know, Black people, uh, elevate people who are um, subdued communities uh, through these acts of protest, celebration, just sort of the DNA of who we are as a group. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we always want to be current. And so another aspect of this upcoming March is we will have representatives from the census um, speaking to the participants and encouraging people to be counted, be included, so that your communities can get the funding that they need from the government.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's a great idea. Um, Hopefully that... um is able to uh, reach the people that need to hear that as well.
1: Uh, So the movement started in 2013. What progress have you seen made over the last seven years? Is that
2: progress returning to the movement or for the Black community in general? Maybe we
0: should rephrase. Do you think that the movement has made an impact on what you've seen in the Black community?
2: On the quality of life for us as far as our relationship with the government, I haven't seen a gigantic improvement um, there, to be honest with you. I think if anything, it's just helped us um, as fighters of injustice become stronger, more galvanized, and more committed and uh, to the fight and assisted people to... Um, you know, activate people and members within their community and just to become aware and stay aware of the issues. Um, my Instagram feed and Facebook feed have completely changed over the last seven years. So people are just, um, aware, awake, and they are using their voices more. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I, I think that, you know, the awareness is the number one thing that we can draw to this issue. There's not really anything that you can solve, you know, in this world, any ailment, any disease, any you know cultural disease that we can solve without our awareness. Um, so there has never been a movement like Black Lives Matter um, that has existed before this to draw attention to such a, an overarching and you know impactful issue. So I think awareness has been the number one way in which it's changed the landscape of things. I think. That awareness has caused um, Black allies to become more sympathetic and keep their eyes open to record uh, if they see something happening, to stand up for Black people if they see something happening. Um, I think it's caused Black people to become aware of what's happening. If you're in one you know, part of the nation or if you're in one socioeconomic rung, this may not be as impactful as you know if you live somewhere else and you're also Black. So I think awareness is one huge way, but the reality is you know, we are in Baltimore. We're not far from DC. There are marches going on in DC. There are marches going on in Baltimore. There are marches going on in New York in California. And these things ultimately and inevitably uh, find their way into legislation, into, you know, uh, real impactful ways in terms of policy change. And so, you know, this is all part, Black Lives Matter is just one part of a much larger issue. You know, people say things like the civil rights movement was only from X to Z, you know, and as if it's something in the past. But when the reality is when in 2020, Black people are having to fight for their lives and their worth as citizens um, for the right to exist and to survive, you know, when Black women can be killed and no one pay attention, we are absolutely still within the civil rights movement. We are part of that movement. Um, You know, so I think that it's absolutely changed over the last seven years. I'm personally really mournful that we've even had to have something like the Black Lives Matter movement, but also really thankful, you know, as, as a Black man, as a Black man with Black children, as, um, as a human being, I'm thankful that, you know, it's made the kind of impact and change in the world that it has. And I expect, I'll say this, I expect that, you know, in the next so many years, we will inevitably see more change uh, affecting our laws and procedures than we've seen in the last so many years.
0: Um, Before we part, um, did y'all just want to go ahead and share the information again for that March upcoming this Saturday, as well as if anybody wants to volunteer um, for uh, Queers for Black Lives, if you want to give out that information again, that would be awesome.
2: Uh, The upcoming March is this Saturday, the 19th, March for Stand for Brianna. We're going to meet at the Why Not Lot at 1 p.m., that's at 4 West North Avenue and we will proceed from there and march to the Wyman Park Dell where we're gonna entertain all of our attendees um, with a little song and
4: dance. And if anyone wants to volunteer, they can send us an email at queers4blm at gmail.com. or go uh, to our Facebook or Instagram and send us a DM that Queers4BLM uh, it's the number for BLM at gmail.com thank you Derek
0: well thank you all so much for joining us today on the Pridecast and um, we look forward to seeing all the progress
1: um, through Queers for Black Lives thank you for having you it was wonderful chatting with you. you all and thank you for all you're doing The music featured at
0: the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.